politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Are the Republican debates so bad and so pointless that they should be shut down? With Feinstein's seat now tragically open, can Democrats leverage Kamala Harris out of office plus Yunkin mania? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by Noah Rothman, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD. Michael Brennan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are How the World Works from CEI and the Benson Center. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, speaking of forgetting and forgettable, the Republicans gathered at um, the Reagan Library under that iconic Air Force One. The lighting was terrible. Pretty much all the candidates looked terrible, except for uh, Vivek. The content was mostly terrible. Questions weren't great. Moderators didn't have control of the candidates. I think they need to do some sort of, you know, we're opening only the mic for the person who's speaking at a given moment. Uh, just the crosstalk was was really hard to take. And some of the, the, you know, I like contention. I like political arguments. But some of this stuff was just so dumb and reached its nadir with uh, Tim Scott hitting Nikki Haley on the curtains in her residence at the at the UN. It yeah. was just really it was it was really it was really dumb. But what was your what was your takeaway? Um my takeaway so I think there was only one political takeaway from that debate, which was uh, I don't think it matters how many people watched it. Uh, I don't think it mat. I don't think any of the responses really mattered, except that I think Haley may have hurt herself um, a little bit by not building on the momentum from the first debate. Uh, I just think that at, toward the end of the debate, Ron DeSantis picked a fight with Donald Trump on abortion and kind of signaled, "I'm willing to have this fight with Donald Trump about abortion in front of people." And I think the media and maybe Donald Trump himself will oblige him. And that's something to look forward to in the next couple of weeks and could have political weight and moment that nothing in the debate had itself. Um, the rest of the debate, I thought, was, you know, sad in, <laughs> in a way. Like, mm-hmm. Doug Burgum, I actually quite liked. I mean, he's, he, is, he has no fundraising base really to compete with the top-tier candidates, but he was the most dignified, most creative and insightful in his answers um, and kind of totally acceptable to Republicans in, in each one of them. Um, and I sort of started fantasizing about a smoke-filled room that could, could elevate him uh, in the future. 
but we're not there. Uh, other than that, I thought, you know, I thought DeSantis helped himself over time in that debate. I don't know how many people were watching the last half hour when he sort of really had his best moments. I, I mean, the debate seemed like it was structured not to help him. Like, he wasn't even called on. Yeah, that was bizarre. Uh, it was very bizarre to put him in the center stage and then spend so much time with Vivek and, and Burgum before you got to DeSantis. And, um, yeah, it just it, it was not a flattering look for the Republican Party as a whole. And, um, you know, the, I mean, there were other notable kind of sidelights, like Vivek trying to um, totally change his personality from, from the first debate. Mm -hmm. I actually yeah. think he was a little successful. Um, and I actually think it was a winning line for him to say that he was, he comes across as young and too eager. Um, I think that. Yeah. His, his campaign now should be based on, on I'm a total a-hole and I know it. <laughs> yeah. but no, no, I'm going to try I mean, to mend my ways. <laughs> no, but, but I think, I, I think that's, um, I, I just thought that was a winning tone to strike of self-deprecation uh, because it's the thing you need in a man like that. Um, to, to yeah, it's to it's like the, it's the falsest position he's taken so far as self-deprecation. <laughs> it is, <laughs> but, but it, I agree it, with you. It's, it, it, it's better it, than the first debate. Totally it, agree. It grounds him in reality. So, so that's all I took away. Like I said, I think uh, I mean my my view of this debate and fundamentally of this kind of undercard group of Republicans who aren't Donald Trump debating is we're waiting for this field to winnow down to one or two who will then get a direct shot at Donald Trump. And it's in that, that clash is the only, only um, clash that has the dynamic to change the polling significantly because it will, once, once you hit Iowa, then the results begin changing the national polls very quickly. Yeah. So Noah, I wrote a post after the debate that was kind of a mulligan debate because we, we had the Vivek and, and I was wrong. I forget what my letter grade was for Vivek first time around, but I gave pretty high marks because I, I, you know, my assumption was just he's out for notoriety. So he doesn't care how he came across, but he clearly does. And it was reflected in the polls. You know, so, some of the insta polling about people's reaction to the debate you know, it was was okay or good for him, but the the actual real world results and and other polling nationally in, in the states has not been good, and he's clearly reacted to it. Another thing, and and you made this big point after uh, the first debate, they didn't hit Trump for not being there. That they they rectified that. You know, Christie and DeSantis both went after him, pretty much hammer and tongs. Trump on that. Well, bracket Trump. We're going to come back to Trump in the next segment, and then Tim Scott. You know, he. Um, uh, we, we talked to MBD mentioned how DeSantis was kind of missing early part of the debate because it just questions didn't come to him. That was true of Scott in the first debate, and, and he was generally just not a presence in the first debate. Obviously, he realized that was a mistake, so he ate his Wheaties. He was very energetic. The thing with with Scott is just I don't know. One, he he the the, the over talking other people. It's not true to who he is. It was kind of annoying, and I. I think it went too far. And then I just don't know what is his rationale besides I, I'm my, my story is compelling and shows America is not the racist country. Besides that, it's just not clear to me why he wants to be president of the United States, and that's a pretty big deal. The two candidates who didn't really 
adjust. In fact, I think kind of double down on their approach is DeSantis. Clearly the approach with DeSantis is I don't want to debate anyone. I don't want any spontaneous moments. I don't want a big viral moment slapping someone down. It's it's too risky. Plus slapping people down can um, make your, your negative ratings go up even if you win that exchange in the moment. I'm just going to use every single opportunity to give a set speech about what my message is. And this is very unsatisfying to me. Um, and th there are moments like Tim Scott hit him on the Florida uh, curriculum, the African-American studies curriculum, a smear. DeSantis didn't, didn't come back at him. Uh, Pence, who hit him? Oh, yeah, Pence hit him on spending. There's a little bit uh, of the commercial break, so it was a bad break for DeSantis. But most candidates, the next time they have a chance to speak, they, cut, they would come back at, at that. Didn't do it. A little mix up, um, mix it up a little bit with Nikki Haley because it was unavoidable on the question of fracking in Florida. But otherwise, he just delivered his message. And I, and I think the first debate, I, I had the same reaction to him as I did in the first debate. I it was pretty good, you know, not great, not exceptional, sex, exceptional, but pretty good. And Nikki Haley doubled down on being really forceful and willing to hit people. Uh, and I really worked the first debate. Had she had benefits coming out of the first debate because of that. This one, I don't know. I think it just it went a little too far. She seemed too personally nasty towards Vivek, and I, I don't have a lot of use for Vivek as a presidential candidate. Obviously, it just struck me as a little too much. But what were your impressions? I think all of those are pretty solid impressions. One thing you said, Rich, that I, I want to clarify, because I have a grand theory of the debate, but it would be altered if you're right. Did you say that the fracking question was a prompt? Because as I recall, that just kind of came out of nowhere. No, Nikki hit him on. Nikki hit him uh, on. Went out of a way to hit that, him. It was, that was, it was not the hit. That was not the moderator's prompt, right? Because I didn't correct. Call it. Oh, Nick, okay. Nikki, so this, so my, and he tried to just kind of laugh it off, and then she came back. No, it's true. So he had to engage a little bit on it. And it is. And true. I think they're both. They're both were wrong or exaggerating, and also partly right. Well, it is true. I mean, it's she's right about the sequence of events there, but wrong insofar as it matters because it's not like Florida's sitting on a whole bunch of reserves of natural gas or shale. Um, nevertheless, she got the sequence of events correct and Ron DeSantis assembled. I think if I had to posit a whole grand theory of this debate is that it was unsatisfying to us because we were not the audience. I feel like the audience for this debate from the moderators to the candidates was the Republican donor class. That whole Haley Scott moment was prompted by the Fox News uh, debate um, moderators saying, hey, Tim Scott, do you have anything you want to say to Nikki Haley? Like, it came out of nowhere and was kind of discordant because it wasn't really something, it wasn't a dynamic that was occurring naturally on stage or organic in any way. They just kind of incepted it into existence. And that's why it was so utterly unsatisfying and had to do with this nonsense. By, by the way, a, a allegation that the New York Times reported and subsequently retracted about Nikki Haley uh, um renovating this United Nations residence when that happened under the Obama administration. But the Nikki Haley and Tim Scott moments, the efforts to make Tim Scott into some sort of a, of a feature on the stage, giving him every opportunity to shine and sort of whiffed at just about all of them. The Ron DeSantis versus Nikki Haley exchanges and both of them swinging at Trump, all of them seem strike me as an effort to convince the donor class, which is increasingly discomfited by the trajectory of this race and wants a winnowing yesterday, uh, who's going to remain in this field? I mean, literally, the whole off-the-island question, which was kind of base, and I'm glad that 
Ron DeSantis took that opportunity just spontaneously to say, I'm not going to dignify that with a response because it was. Yeah, I think um, that was no, I just sorry to interrupt, but I think this he's attempted to do this repeatedly during the uh, during the debates, either kind of come back at the moderators, you know, we're not children. That's what he said in the hand raising thing, but the hand raising thing in the first debate, but the hand raising thing bit him because he had to raise a hand later. And oftentimes he's tried to get in these, you know, candidates, this is a a well-worn tactic where two candidates are squabbling and another candidate comes in, well, this isn't the important thing, this is, you know, and they make a presidential statement. He's tried to do that repeatedly and either it just hasn't bounced his way or he hasn't been commanding enough to assert himself. He did have, I forgot what exchange it was, Um, there was one exchange where he succeeded in doing it uh, during this debate. And then there was also this moment, which worked. Well, as you say, Ron DeSantis didn't want moments. He avoided every opportunity he could to have moments. I mean, in that, there were a couple of opportunities for him to pull a Newt Gingrich and really go after the moderators, especially Ilya Calderon from Univision, who said something, uh, a couple of uh, really pointed questions about the curriculum, about the African-American slavery points in the curriculum, which was extremely uncharitable. And something else, I forget what, where... He just rejected the premise, but he just offhandedly rejected the premise. He didn't dwell on it, and he didn't hammer the press for the um, uncharitable assumptions that went into the premise, which he probably could have and might have given him a bit of a, a moment that would have gone you know, viral. But he didn't want them. By contrast, just about everybody else on that stage really did and was lunging, were lunging for them in really theatrical and ham-fisted ways. Nikki Haley in particular, and I don't think that really redounded to her benefit, although snap polling after after the, um, uh, by the Washington Post, after the debate said that uh, Ron DeSantis did the best by far and Nikki Haley did second best. And then the audience's impression was that Chris Christie and, and Mike Pence did very poorly, and that was not my impression. I understand, and I gave myself, I wrote about this, and I gave myself a little caveat insofar as Chris Christie remains the most hated person on that stage by Republicans by a mile. Anything he said will not resonate because they are simply not open to him or his message. But he was by far the most cogent and clear thinker. Even Nikki Haley, when I was impressed by the de- her, her depth of policy knowledge on foreign policy and healthcare, and she just sort of r- rattled off all these particulars in ways that, I, that were very policy dense. But nevertheless, trying to cram it all in 30 seconds made it all sound um, really rushed and uh, just kind of incomprehensible in ways that I think, you know, she kind of got all the debate prep mumbled, muddled in her head in that moment, trying to have all, and trying to uh, engineer all these moments for herself, and it didn't necessarily work. And lastly, to your point, Rich, in that piece that you wrote, and you you referenced Vivek, I mean, clearly he has been privy to a lot of data that suggests everybody who saw his performance in the first debate was (laughs) repulsed by it, so he decided to be an entirely different person on that debate stage. Uh, I don't think that's going to help him with the perception of him as being utterly inauthentic when you decide, as you say, when you decide to be a totally different human being from one day to the next. Um, Nevertheless, if the audience was the Republican donor class, there really are just two candidates Mm -hmm. left here who are viable alternatives to Donald Trump. And I think we'll get closer to that winnowing process much sooner than later. Yeah, I just think, Noah, on on Chris, there, there are two people unfortunately, that just Republican voters are, are not going to be Im- impressed by. Uh, Christie, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's a really powerful communicator and, s- and says a lot of things that uh, are, are true and need to be said. But 
there's just a resistance there. And also, I think Mike Pence, I was just shocked this, uh, I don't think he had a good night, but the, the CNN focus group that mirrored what we've seen in some of the instant polling, but uh, th- this focus group hated Pence, just hated Pence. So I just think there's a resistance there as well. And then you mentioned the Univision moderator. Why? It's just so insulting. You know, you, you have the Latina there to ask like identity politics, Latina-like questions. Oh, it was like and transgenderism really and DACA. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, of course, we're rejecting your premise, lady. Yeah. And as my, my friend Giancarlo Sopa points out, this is so dumb on so many levels, one of which is that re- Republican uh, H- Hispanics do not watch Univision, right? So why do you have her from that network of, of all things? But uh, Maddie, what were your impressions? Yeah, so I agree uh, largely with what you've said already, but the it, it seems to be when I was writing the best moments and worst moments for each candidate, I realized when I came to Vivek that his worst moments were actually in some ways his best moments because they were just so hilarious. Mm-hmm. So when he said that, you know, you, you guys are good people tainted by a broken system. Yeah, and it, it I laughed out loud. I, I, laughed, I laughed out loud as well. It was so funny. And, and at one point, I think as well, he said, like, thank you for speaking while I'm interrupting. Before, <laughs> yeah. You know, cor- correcting himself. And and actually, you know, as it as it went on, I saw that for, for sheer entertainment value, he was he was great. He was the standout character. Obviously, not really a very serious um, candidate in other respects. But I did see multiple attempts throughout the night for people to attempt those memorable moments, not on substance, but on their entertainment value. So we saw that, I think, with Nikki Haley attacking Vivek. And, you know, she has the disadvantage of being the only person on that stage to have a voice that's naturally an octave higher than everybody else. And so in raising her voice, it you know, I hate to say this because I'll get accused of sexism, but it does sound kind of shrill when she just goes on and on and she sort of lost her train right, of thought. You, let the record show you said it. None of the guys <laughs> said it, but you said it. Yeah, yeah. You know, she she lost her train of thought. Something about China and TikTok and kids and the Bidens and landed on we can't trust you, but took, took a while to get there. Don't think it was really all that effective. Um, Chris Christie had a couple of genuinely funny moments when he looked at the camera. I know you're watching Donald. That was that was good. Uh, had that joke that landed flat about Donald Duck. Yeah. Um, but at least at least he committed to it because I think with Mike Pence, um, he had the, the 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 sex joke that that also fell flat. And the, the problem was he could have just really committed to it, and it would have been a bit awkward and people would have forgot about it. But he he spent the whole night speaking really slowly. And he came to this question and you could kind of see him thinking, like, am I really going to say this? Yeah, there's this really awkward pause. Yeah, awkward pause. He, he, he went and he said it and it, it just, it was, it was awkward. And I think he, he had a very bad night, I think. He, you know, there was the, the question that he very clearly didn't answer. He yeah. went off on a, a tangent about... Totally unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Dana Prina then drew drew attention to this evasion by saying, does that mean Obamacare is staying where it is? Like, you know, and that got a laugh. And I think, you know, you don't want to become the, the butt of the joke. But as for the, the island question, you know, for me and, and Perino's defense, I for me, I just think it was a reminder, maybe, maybe too upfront that this is not really all that serious. This is not all that consequential. The stakes are pretty low. Um, I think DeSantis was right to respond as he did, and that was the, the safe way to play that. 
Um, but overall, we, we didn't really learn that much. Uh, nothing really has changed. Yeah, so that, that was a terrible question. I think the defense of it would be that you didn't really expect them to do it, but it'd be interesting to see how they reacted. And it did get a reaction, yeah. you know, that, that, uh, that we've, we've it's got generated a lot of commentary with, with how, how DeSantis handled it. And Pence, you know, he just has this um, way, way of speaking publicly that is slow and deliberate that you associate with authority. So I think a lot of presidential candidates, especially when they first get in, they, they tend to speak too quickly and they need to slow down. But Pence may have, uh, you know, over time may have gotten <laughs> too, because a lot of people, I think maybe this was one of the comments in that CNN focus group I mentioned is just, they associate it with insincerity. Yeah. So let's go to letter grades, all important letter grades, MBD. The, these will be, even if the debate is not long remembered, these grades will be long remembered, MBD. So it's uh, <laughs> uh, t take them with all, all due seriousness. Just just run run through all six with your with your grades. Sure. DeSantis B, um, Doug Burgum, uh, A minus. Um, uh, Haley, C, Scott, C minus, uh, Christy, C, and, uh, Vivek, C. So it was kind of a middling night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm coming in the same place. Noah? Um, Okay. <laughs> this is a struggle. Hang on. I'm worried. Noah hates letter grades, but you had plenty of warning about these letter grades. I did. Let, let my, yes, uh, my dissatisfaction is registered. Nevertheless, uh, Mike Pence, D. I thought he did very poorly. Uh, Nikki Haley, B. Plus. Tim Scott, B. Minus. Vivek, a solid C. Chris Christie, I have no patience for, but I thought he turned in the most, the strongest performance that night, so I give him an A minus. Uh, Doug Burgum was. Does, shot down by the moderators for trying to interject, trying to get himself on that stage. And frankly, he didn't belong on that stage. I like Doug Bergman. I thought he behaved quite, or he behaved competently. But he was on that stage because one Republican poll managed to somehow find 3% support for him in the nation, whereas everyone else is getting zeros and ones. It's a very interesting result, and I don't think he belonged there. And he d acted like he didn't belong there. So he also gets a D plus, I'll give him that, just for mm. participating. And uh, Ron DeSantis didn't have anything that you could say he, he he whiffed on, and I don't think he hit anything out of the park, so I'll just give him a solid B. Maddie? I'm going to give DeSantis an A-. minus. I think that he he loses points for for the slow first half, but then that's not entirely his fault. Um, Nikki Haley I thought was a B. Chris Christie was a B. Vivek, I'm going to give an A for the reason that wow. if he wasn't on the stage, and again, not on substance, but if he wasn't on the stage, it would have been a lot more boring. Mm -hmm. And he did spend the entire night getting attacked. And I mm -hmm. thought he actually, he's a very good talker for, for everything else we say about him. He's a very good talker and he, he dealt with that Yeah, so just, well. just for the amount of attention and talking he's done and attacks have been directed at him, both debates, you would think he's the front runner. Right. He also, you know, he also got the last word, which is not insignificant mm -hmm. as well. Um, Pence, I thought, was a C. He had a bad night. Tim Scott had a terrible night. It was a D for me, just constantly what, interrupting. Why? The interrupting? Yeah, it was the interrupting, bringing up the UN curtains, um, which I think was a big mistake. And I, I can't remember anything else he said except for his personal story, which yeah. is, you know, it's inspiring, but kind of tired. And also, you know, it's just... 
th this was really important for him to to establish himself given his last performance. So I think he did not do that. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I can remember a few little things, but a lot of it is just kind of static. Can so I sorry, is that... Then, can I sorry, and then, sorry. sorry, sorry, go ahead. No. I was just going to give Doug yeah, Barrow a B. But. Okay. No, I just want to briefly posit a, a Vivek theory that... Vivek, because one of the ways you, you can't really attack Donald Trump on his behavior and comportment because Dem Republicans have a re protective instinct around that. But you can, Vivek, you can go after his comportment, his behavior, mm -hmm. his conduct in ways that make him sort of a proxy for Donald Trump. And maybe that yeah. justifies. Yeah, you know, the, the other thing, I, I read a comment about Vivek after the first debate, you know, here, here's our uh, Trump, Trump imitator, and you, you're obnoxious as as you possibly could be. But it's just another um, lesson or indication. It's really hard to be Trump without Trump. So Trump could be an a hole and just own it, right? <laughs> and Vivek was an a hole, got hurt, and he's guess what? He's not one anymore. It's just it's just very hard to to because so much of Trump is just that unique, powerful personality that you just can't replicate. So I, I, I'm, I'm probably closest, as I mentioned, to, to where M MBD is. I, I'm just like a, a kind of mid middling muddle kind of for everyone. I give DeSantis highest grade B plus, Haley C, Vivek C. I, I just think more, more winsome, obviously, than the first time around, but just he doesn't know who he, who, who he is, or he, or he does and doesn't, doesn't want to admit it. Christie C, Scott B minus more more of a presence, which is good, but just just nothing memorable in, in some ways. Uh, kind of a, annoying. Burgum, I, you know, I like the substance. I like him. I, I give him a, a B. I could go lower. I take Noah's point. You know, he just shouldn't be on the stage. And Pence, I love Mike Pence, so I'll give him a, a very generous C minus. So with that. Let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, the How the World Works podcast from our good friends at CEI. As listeners of National Review Podcast, you already have all the riveting, you've just experienced some, political commentary and news analysis you need. But good news, there's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our good old friend, Kevin Williamson, offering a fresh perspective on something we all do work to make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, it's a look at how the world, you know, actually works. Each episode, Kevin has an intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy and social lives, and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash podcast to find the latest episodes of the show. So Noah, um, immediately, I don't know, maybe it was during, but I saw it immediately after the debate. You had this guy, Chris LaCivita, who works for Trump, saying, you know what, this this was boring and inconsequential. Yeah, you know, a little, little, little hard to take too, too much umbrage at that. And Trump's not showing up for the next one either. So there was some, some thought that skipping the debates would hurt Trump. There's been zero sign of it so far. His polling, at least in the 538 average, ticked up a little bit after the last debate, which he skipped, which I assume was the mugshot effect that overwhelmed everything else. There was also, I wrote about this a little bit yesterday, so I looked up this uh, uh, YouGov poll and it it had uh, it was prior to this uh, uh, the second debate here, 
and it asked people, you know, what do you think of Trump skipping the debates? And everyone supported him skipping, having skipped this the first debate. But they're all saying, oh, he should really show up to the second debate. But I'm sure, you know, if they take a, a poll now and ask, how do you think about him skipping the second debate? Oh, oh, that was great. You know, but he should show up for the third one. So, again, there's just like this Trump effect where people, a lot of Republican voters will just almost support uh, everything that he does. And this, this goes to... Um, the, the, the other point made by La Civita, which is, why are we having these debates? They should be shut down. They're counterproductive. Trump himself said this in an interview, said he doesn't trust the RNC anymore because they're having these destructive debates. And then you had Newt Gingrich also actually saying, you know, the race is over. It's pointless. We shouldn't have debates. What do you make of it? So let's start first with the polling that you referenced. <clears throat> Because we're confronted with a conundrum here. Because if you take the polls at face value, Donald Trump is the prohibitive favorite. And yet in those same polls, Republican voters do say it's very important for these candidates to show up. Before the August debate, Quinnipiac University says it was 57% of Republicans said very important. 27% said somewhat important. And then, as you say, Rich, you, you know, survey the landscape and they're like, well, he's under indictment. I mean, you can't expect him to show up for every debate, right? I mean, the guy's busy. And then... It persists. CBS or Economist YouGov survey after the debate, 61% of Republicans say they give Trump a pass, but then another 57% say, oh, he better show up for that second debate. And you have a CBS News poll prior to this debate uh, of New Hampshire and um, Iowa voters. 62% of Iowa voters and 53% of New Hampshire voters say it's important for them to, the debates are important for them as, an, as a metric, a way to evaluate these candidates. And a pretty healthy minority, 43% in Iowa, 50, I'm sorry, 48% in Iowa, 43% in New Hampshire, say their vote is still pretty much up for grabs, with 25, 20% or so saying they're only Trump and another third saying they're not Trump. So which is it? It's kind of hard to evaluate. Do, do Republican voters preserve this double standard that they maintain for Donald Trump, or at least are willing to tell pollsters and media professionals that they maintain for Donald Trump? Or do they really want the debates? And do they think the debates are important? The two things are in Congress. Like it's one or the other. And then, as you say, you have this growing sentiment on the part of Republican political professionals in particular, and media fixtures especially, who are nervous about the, the ongoing contest. Um, you had Newt Gingrich definitely come out and say it's you know it's, it's over it's time to coalesce. Some are more enthusiastic about about it than others. I was reading this Washington Times op-ed by uh, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, who wrote this whole long piece about how Republicans in this field have to do some soul searching and coalesce around an alternative to Donald Trump. And the headline the Washington Times granted it was the Republican presidential primary cycle is over, which is not what the op-ed said. It's not what the governor was saying in that piece at all but it's what the editorial staff said and perhaps what they want. Um, I don't think it's over. I don't think this contest is, is, I don't think Republican voters are done evaluating this contest. And if Donald Trump wants a coronation and demands a coronation and Republican voters say they don't want one, then we have to, we have to come to terms with one of two things. Either they're lying to pollsters they're lying to media professionals, or they're lying to themselves. And I don't know which one it is. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Don't you know, I think with each other. 
I think Trump says he wants a coronation. About 50% of Republican voters can say, you know what? There, there's this great, there's St. Edward's crown. You know, we can get it on loan from the Tower of London and see, see, do a fitting and see, see, if, it, see if it works for you. Uh, MBD, you've all along um, kind of in a, with, an, with an optimistic take said, you know, look, Trump's the, the de facto incumbent. So, of course, he's going to be ahead in the polls or early going. That doesn't mean that's dispositive. But the, the other way of looking at that, that uh, perspective or, or taking that point is, yeah, he's the incumbent president. Incumbent presidents don't lose. Uh, incumbent presidents sweep to victory uh, almost always. And incumbent presidents, as we're seeing like with Joe Biden, have the ability to say, you know what? Um, I, I'm not going to show up to, at debates, don't have uh, debates. You know, actually, maybe if RFK and Marianne Williamson want to have a debate, that's fine. Uh, but, but otherwise, uh, don't bother me uh, with, with, your, uh, with your rumblings and your contentions and your attempt to defeat me because we got to focus on November 2024 and beating the enemy before us. Yeah, well, the problem is, like, I, I just still believe, like Noah, I, I'm just still... Uh, a believer that they, there must be something to these poll results showing that, you know, like 70% of voters in Iowa are cons- deliberate, say, are deliberating between Trump and DeSantis, right? They'll say, like, well, I'm for Trump, but I'm also considering DeSantis. Uh, and that leaves an, an opening for some kind of dynamic to develop uh, mm-hmm. if DeSantis starts rising again uh, and picks his campaign off the, the floor. And, and regains his momentum. I just, you know, there are like, <laughs> and there are all these other polls, you know, that we've seen in the past where you'll see something like, uh, you know, 65% of the country says Donald Trump should never be president again. Well, then how that squares up somehow with polls showing him beating Joe Biden. So some number of those people who think Donald Trump should never be president again are willing to support him only because he's, uh, facing Joe Biden, so there is something of a softness to Trump's support. There are people who are supporting him only conditionally, um, and we—I just don't know if that will. That leads me to think that it's not impregnable, right? That you know, the impregnable lead is what you see Joe Biden having over RFK Jr., which is okay. Mm-hmm. You, you rose yeah. up to maybe. You know, eighteen percent, but then you've just fallen on your head on your head ever since, and it's not a serious challenge anymore. Um, that's not what this race looks like now for Trump, and it's not what I think it'll look like if it's if it's winnowed down to two or three people. Take New Hampshire for example to illustrate that point. A CNN UNH poll uh, of New Hampshire voters, New Hampshire Democrats, said that they, like 61 to, or 65, something like that, percent of Democrats said they'd write in Joe Biden if he doesn't appear on the ballot. And he might not. He might not appear on the primary ballot in New Hampshire because Democrats had this very weird theory about how they could rejigger the calendar and, and everybody would go along with it, and they're not. But that's not what Donald Trump is facing. Do- voters are not saying, I'm going to write in Donald Trump if he's not there. I'm so 100% Donald Trump. He's down mm-hmm. to like 39% in that survey yeah. of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So he's, yep. he's a functional incumbent nationally, but not in the early states, mm-hmm. and by the way, where yeah. everybody's on the air, where there's actual campaigns on the ground. And by the way, yeah. So the key question is: Is there something? Sorry, MBD. Is, is there something weird about uh, Iowa or New Hampshire, or as as voters other places begin to pay attention, the way voters in Iowa and New Hampshire have uh, to to an extent that voters haven't 
nationally, does the race look more like those places? MBD, sorry. By the way, I don't love the quality of these state-level polls that we've been getting the last two months. They're not that big. They're not that deep, and they're not by that many reputable pollsters. So, like, I, I just I feel like we have a dearth of the kind of good polling that we've had in previous elections. Now, we joke about good polling because, you know, the results didn't come out that way. But they usually got within the margin of error. And mm-hmm. I'm skeptical that we're getting a really clear picture at the Iowa and New Hampshire level right now. So, Maddie, when Trump hasn't been calling for shutting down – the Republican debates, he went out to Detroit to woo a, a UAW uh, workers who were on strike, said, you know, just your union com- comes along with me and I will take care of everything. What do you make of it? Yeah, so this is kind of bold of him because obviously unions are very much democratic territory. And in fact, the UAW president um has criticized Trump and and been very supportive and, and welcoming when when Biden came uh, to speak to them. I think he he the president said um, as in the president of the UAW said that uh, it was ironic um, that uh, Trump was holding his rally for union members at a non-union business um, and said some pretty harsh things. But then Trump has had kind of unprecedented support from union members compared to other Republicans. Um, you know, in 2016, he it was their support that helped him arguably capture Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, and I was I noticed a, a recent uh, Wall Street Journal review of campaign finance filings showed that the, the big three um, among the big three that more than 200 contributions to to Trump's 2024 pres- presidential campaign has been made. And this is this is really is unprecedented. None of the the other GOP primary opponents have, have seen these kind of donations. I don't even think Biden's seen that many. Um, I did listen to, to some of Trump's speech, and it's it's really just more of the same. It's just, uh, I don't even know if you can call it speech, honestly. It's just kind of a stream of consciousness. It's, a lot of it sounds like things you, you would have heard in 2016 or even 2020, um, just this, stoking the same sorts of, uh, of of grievances, but he has he has more things he can he can list now. Uh, Sleepy Joe has become Crooked Joe, um, but he, there was this one moment where he he said to them, "I don't think you're pissing for the right thing," um, and he he was saying, you know, you should really be focusing on the Biden administration's support of electric vehicles rather than these companies. Uh, that's really what's what's doing you harm. And it reminded me actually of his comments to the pro life movement, where he's he's kind of like, I I'm closer to this than you are. I know more about this than you do. And it's a very audacious political move, probably one that's really only ever made by a demagogue like him. Um, but, you know, there's people, I mean, again, I don't know if these people are actually union members or if they just showed up, uh, but, you know, they're they're cheering and, and supporting, and it does just show the kind of influence that he has with, with his base. So, Noah, do you have, uh, how much sympathy do you have for these striking workers? Oh, a little. I mean, I mean, not a little. Uh, the actual workers themselves, I have a fair amount of, of sympathy for the plight that they've been put in by the Biden administration. They're striking against conditions that have been incepted by the Biden administration. And in fact, a lot of labor action that we're seeing is a response to the conditions brought in, brought about by the Biden administration's commitment to profligacy. They're rebelling against the cost of living, which is a problem brought about by excessive uh, government spending and the inflation that it has wrought. Likewise, they're also very frustrated 
by the administration's effort to subsidize into existence an electric vehicle economy that otherwise isn't justified by consumer demand. Um, so yes, they're rebelling against, these are largely Democratic unions rebelling against the conditions brought about by Democrats, and they're trying to navigate a Democratic economy. In that sense, sure, I have a fair amount of sympathy. The demands that they're asking for are quite excessive. What they want, the um, a 40% raise, a 32-hour work week, a restoration of pension benefits that are more uh, something you would see in the 20th century, and uh, full-time pay for part-time labor is a design is designed to um, freeze economic conditions in place, which is impossible. It does not work, and it will not work in this case. And frankly, if we had one party that was devoted to the demands of consumers, e.g. the people who buy and or lease vehicles, a much larger universe of voters than the ones that we have than than the um, striking workers here, then we might have an actual you know debate that would be edifying. Right now, both parties are committed to this proletarian fantasy, um, which is going after a very small universe of voters. Well, I was kind of amused by the reaction from the press to Trump's uh, effort to. Um, go after these workers. They're like, well, he's going to a non-union shop. He's not even talking to union labor. What's he doing here? There's a very small amount of workers in the manufacturing sector who are actually unionized. It would be a very clever play, indeed a conservative play, to go after workers, not union members, workers. And I was willing to defend Donald Trump on that, on that premise, if that was his premise, but it's not. The speech was, he said, ah, you know, I can, I can, uh, I'll be better for unions. I'll be a better union president than the president now who says he's the best union president ever. They're all playing for a very small universe of voters predicated on this conception of the electorate that I think is not reflective of our time, but sort of this hazy recollection of what the American social compact right. was in the 1970s. So MBD, how, if at all, does this strike fit into your large-scale thesis that Democrats are becoming the, the party of affluent white people well you know the if you look at the total cost of the demands of the united auto workers like what would it, what it would cost for them for the uh three car manufacturers to, to give in totally to them it is less than like one eighth of the cost of complying with the biden administration's electric vehicle mandates which are projected to to create hundreds and hundreds of billion, like millions of dollars of losses in the forthcoming years because Americans aren't buying electric vehicles at the pace that the government anticipates them doing with these um, requirements and subsidies. So again, it's like, it's a replay of older conflicts we've seen before with like the spotted owls versus the loggers where the Democrats are at odds with a a small working constituency and an environmental imperative and Republicans have never quite figured out how to take total advantage of either. It's like a, a it's a tension we notice, but we never quite figure out the wedge in order to split. Um, you know, I thought Donald Trump's strategy in the speech was kind of funny because he basically, he didn't say like, I'm going <laughs> to like a normal politician who wanted to do this would be like, okay, maybe I'll meet with the union work union leaders and see if I can charm them or whatever. Donald Trump is just like commanding the unions. Like you should support me. Um, 
and not being very clear about what he offers. Um, cause he, I don't think he offers much, um, you know, except, you know, potentially hostility to foreign auto workers in, in trade. Um, but yeah, he hasn't, the, no one's kind of figured out how to, how to split this down. I mean, I, I feel some sympathy for these workers, not just because they're facing inflation, but they, they did in the, in the auto bailouts and, and restructuring that happened during the financial crisis. Uh, the workers did take a, a solid, you know, were, uh, basically a pay cut going forward. And that's not been, uh, reflected in growing executive salaries. And now they're asking for their salaries to go up, which is understandable. And, uh, like Noah pointed out times of inflation are times of labor unrest, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, everyone's feeling squeezed and organized labor will begin advocating for a collective, you know, their job is collective bargaining. So the conversations everyone else is having in the country about, uh, raising their own pay are happening individually. It's just the unions make a lot more noise when they do it. And, um, you know, there's a risk of wage price spirals that we saw in the seventies in this, in these kinds of conditions. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know where it will go from here. Um, all right. So Noah asked a question to you going back to Trump and the debates. Trump will eventually show up at a Republican debate. Yes or no? It's a hard one to game out. Um, I don't think he wants to. And as long as there's no pressure on him to do so, then the answer is no. Uh, yes, I think the field will consolidate and DeSantis or Haley will be a big beneficiary and will be climbing dangerously towards him in the early state. And he'll have to appear on a stage in that in Iowa, New Hampshire with them. Maddie. I think somebody would have to catch up um, significantly enough where he starts being advised to go. Not that he necessarily listens to advice, but I think he would have to really feel that he was threatened to go. And uh, I, I don't see that happening um, soon, but it could. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I thought the skipping debates would be a, a temporary thing and not sustainable. I mean, he'd, he'd have to show up at some or at least one. But now I think he could easily skip all of them, right? You know, if, if their their position is, is the debates are positively destructive, why would he show up? And if he can get away with it, why would he show up, which, with, which gets to the necessary condition to getting him to show up, which is someone gaining on him and he feels it necessary to show up and i think he would believe i can smash in any any other significant contender if i'm standing with him or her for uh, two hours on a debate stage and so i don't think it's crazy that this happens and that he eventually has to show up and if he does you know this that would be a really interesting debate and it would actually be uh, a, 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 a be an interesting race at that point uh, which it really isn't right now. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor. You could be the visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy at the Benson Center 
for the study of Western civilization. The College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder invites applications for the position of visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy for the academic year 2024-2025. They're seeking a highly visible individual who is deeply engaged in either the analytical scholarship or practice of conservative thinking and policymaking or both. Thus, applications are welcome for the academic, policy, military, and media communities among others, the visiting scholar will continue a tradition of fostering intellectual diversity on the Boulder campus through the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. To learn more and apply, please go to colorado.edu slash center slash Benson slash CTP search. Let me repeat that, colorado.edu slash center slash Benson slash CTP search. We have a, a lot of highly accomplished people who listen to this podcast, so it wouldn't shock me if there is a, a listener who is, uh, uh, well, many listeners who are perfectly suited for this position, and maybe a, a listener who um, fills this position, which sounds like a, a wonderful opportunity. With that, let me go to you again, Noah. So we have the very sad news that Diane Feinstein suddenly passed away. She obviously had been in decline in some time, a formidable, formidable political career, a formidable senator. We obviously did not share her uh, politics, but I think by any reasonable standard, she was uh, a good senator, stayed too long, and became a uh, kind of po poster child for this phenomenon of geriatric politicians just not knowing when it's time to exit uh, the stage. Uh, she has passed away. Um, we, we wish her, her family and, and friends all the best. But this has created, politics being what it is, instant speculation and chatter. Hmm, there is a, uh, a, a Californian who is in a position now that a lot of Democrats aren't very comfortable with and think is a political drag on the party. And there's this opening, a, a plum job to be a U.S. senator from California for life, as, as Dianne Feinstein has uh, 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 demonstrated. This this is literally could be a lifetime position. So maybe uh, Kamala can be convinced to to just uh, do the right thing, um, take take one for the team. It's not terrible. She can she can go be a, a senator. She doesn't have to be a senator for life. Actually, th this will be such a a plum opportunity for her. She can be a senator for a while, and then we'll guarantee, you know, Hunter, Jim, Joe Biden type uh, uh, lucrative um, uh, careers and, and shady businesses to come. Whatever it is, maybe we can get Kamala to do the right thing here. If this was a, a West Wing episode, if Aaron Sorkin was writing this, some power broker in the White House would take Kamala Harris aside and say, look, your signature on this paper, your career. You will, you, you're a young woman, you wanna have a future in politics, at the very least you wanna make money, go back to practicing law, go to K Street, tour the, tour the world. If you want that future for yourself, you will accept a renomination to the US Senate by Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom takes your place. We submit this to the House and, and the Senate. The Senate ratifies it easy. The House says, oh, we don't wanna give you what you want. And then they're they're muscled and they're convinced that well it'd actually be better for us if Kamala Harris was in the Senate and Gavin Newsom was elevated to the vice presidency somehow. I mean, I'm not sure how to thread that needle, but all these moving parts would give Democrats exactly what they want, which is to get Harris out and 
Gavin Newsom in, quite the talent that he is, and it would make Joe Biden's life a lot easier and probably change a lot of the dynamics that were currently hurtling towards the worst possible situation. And uh, it's probably unlikely. I do want to briefly say that uh, for Dianne Feinstein's legacy, she was a very influential senator um, with a with a really profound legislative legacy and a profound legacy as um, a, uh, a role model for not just women, but um, people who want to go into public service. She was treated very, very poorly by Democrats for the rem- for the last five, six years of her career. And I don't just mean her age, which was perfectly legitimate to say that she should exit the stage given her condition. Uh, in particular, I'm reminded of the episode around Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing and Christine Blasey Ford's letter that was given to her office by Representative Anna Eshoo and was subsequently leaked. Uh, and I don't believe it was her office. I don't believe it was her staff. She denied it and they denied it. I think they were very hostile and frustrated with her efforts to keep those allegations under wraps in deference to what Christine Blasey Ford wanted, supposedly wanted. And this was just, it was too important. And she was a bulwark in the way. Her, her standing on decorum and decency was just standing in the way of what Democrats wanted in that political moment. And they treated her like garbage. And they acted like she was trash and that her time had come and gone. And so everything, all, all the standards to which we had previously um, shown some fealty to had to go just so that we could have this expeditious political moment that would be advantageous for us at that one particular time. And she was treated very, very poorly. And all there were going to be a lot of gauzy, sentimental reflections on what she meant to Democrats. So she didn't mean that much to you then. So MVD in, in this Harris uh, scenario, I don't know why Harris, th- this power broker approached her, she wouldn't just say, no, F you, I, I'm not going anywhere. Make me, fire me, dump me, blow this whole thing up. But no, no, I'm not going. Yeah, I think I think the threat of being dumped is the only potential one that might make her think have second thoughts. Um, but again, that's with huge risks to the Democratic Party, right? Is that um, you've already had, you know, AOC and others say like, "Hey, if there are other alternatives, I wouldn't mind looking at them." Um, to Joe Biden and dumping the first woman of color to be vice president. Um, you know, could be a catalyst. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, her chance of Kamala Harris right now has a very high chance of becoming president Mm -hmm. of the United States because Joe Biden is very likely to be running against Donald Trump. And in that scenario, he's very likely to do what he did last time, which is beat him and win and Joe Biden is very old and very obviously in decline and would either have to step down at some point due to his ongoing decline or he, or he may hit the uh, the actuarial table wall uh, at some point. And so she becomes president. And um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think they can incentivize her to leave unless she really believes that she can be dumped without hurting the ticket and then she has nowhere to go. Um, but we'll see. I, I don't, I don't know that that's proven yet. So Maddie, speaking of fantasy scenarios, we had this piece from the Washington Post recording Friday yesterday about a meeting 
all about Glenn Youngkin potentially running for president, and the tweet went out, and the uh, alarm bell sounded, and holy cow, this is happening. There has been a lot of speculation about this. And then you actually read the body of the piece, and you're like, yeah, you know what? This is a it's a, a meeting of his his pack or his group about the Virginia legislative races this year, which he's uh, Youngkin has been clear he's quite committed to, and has a chance to gain unified Republican control of the legislature, but their donors going to this retreat who want Yunkin to, to run for president. So there's less there than met the eye. And then the Yunkin people and Yunkin himself is like, nope, this is, this is, this is wrong. Um, now, I, th- I think there is part of him must be at least thinking about it a little bit. And there is a lot of chatter about it. There's a lot of wishfulness uh, around around this, so are you are you feeling any any uh, uh, any measure of Yunkin mania? I think wishfulness is the right word. I mean, for for one thing, there's a big practical obstacle in that Nevada's deadline is I think October sixteenth, and then the cutoff sta- dates for other states are in November. So you're really talking about getting an entire campaign together in five weeks or less. Um, which just doesn't seem very realistic. I mean, if he was going to have ran, he would have had to have done so by now. Is he very capable? Yeah, of course. We we know his record in Virginia, um, and he's obviously got a great record on on schools and many other things. But I don't really see him, him as being particularly different from some of the more solid candidates on the debate stage uh, the other night. You know, I, I think that what, why is Glenn Youngkin better positioned than Ron DeSantis? Okay, you say, well, he's a clean slate. Ron DeSantis has made a number of strategic mistakes with his campaign and the way he's tried to uh, steal Trump's votes and stuff. But, I, I mean, in terms of actual substance and character, I don't really see that they're they're that different. It does make me a little concerned about just how desperate we're, we're getting, <laughs> that we're kind of like mm-hmm. looking at these last-ditch efforts to, to stop Trump. Um, but yeah, this does seem rather rather far-fetched in my view. Yeah, I agree with all that, and I would underline the, the desperation. So, so Noah, building on, on Maddie's point, I just think Yunkin, you could slot him in that debate stage the other night, you know, r- right between DeSantis and Haley, you know, a little more MAGA-ish sort of than than Haley, a little more establishment than uh, DeSantis, more relatable than uh, DeSantis. But is he going to set the world on fire? Is he going to command that debate stage? Well, maybe, you know, you, n- you never know until you actually see him up there. But I'm highly skeptical. I thought his campaign against Terry McAuliffe was brilliant. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, you know, h- helped him in some crucial Respects, but I I didn't think in that race. I thought the campa- campaign was brilliant, but Yunkin wasn't necessarily a brilliant candidate. You know, kind of uh, a, a a an electrifying candidate. He he was good and and made himself acceptable to the suburbs, which is important. But where wh- what do you think about Yunkin? Yeah, I think Maddie's points about the mechanics of the thing being prohibitive is pretty much the beginning, middle, and end of that conversation. And I don't think Duncan wants it. Um, I think he's probably being goaded. And he seemed, <clears throat> I think he shot it down, right? I think I saw something along those lines. Regardless, he was a product of a brief, fleeting moment in Republican politics where we had a post-Trump moment. 
Uh, it was 2021. We're still in the shadow of January 6th. There were still lingering sentiments on the right about how that was not actually the greatest thing in the universe, and maybe we should get away from that sort of thing. And Republicans performed extraordinarily well in those off-year elections, not just in Virginia, but in New Jersey as well. And Glenn Youngkin was reflective of sort of a status quo ante in the GOP that is no more. Um, so I don't know what kind of an audience he has outside the Republican donor base. And yes, if he was to get on that stage, his sort of managerial, technocratic, competent, but conservative persona wouldn't set the world on fire. And it would probably just cement in the minds of Republican voters that there is no alternative to Donald <laughs> yeah. Trump but Donald Trump. Yeah, you're so right. It, it just, it seemed, I remember, I remember those days so fondly where it seemed like, oh, the, the post, the post Trump party is going to be Glenn, Glenn Youngkin, you know, who learned to be more combative on, on certain cultural issues, but uh, could, could be, still have broad appeal. And, and the answer so, so far since then has been, you know what, the, the post Trump version of, of Trumpism is Trump, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's just Trump. So MBD, let's go. So I, I think we probably all agree Youngkin's not going to get in. Correct me if I'm wrong. So let me ask the ask, ask a question to you instead, looking at the taking those, I think I said it, there were six, there were actually seven candidates on the debate stage the other night. Who would be the first three to drop out in your view? Um, Bergam, Pence, and uh, boy, it's tough to choose between Christie and Scott because um, I think both have egos uh, that would be wounded by dropping out that early. But I'll say Scott. Noah. I agree with that. Um, Mike Pence, because he's civic minded. Um, Tim Scott also because he's civic minded and um, Burgum and the money thing is a, is an issue. Tim Scott has a fair amount of money, I think still. And so does Chris Christie and, and Burgum has an endless pot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but generally I, there's no traction for Burgum. I think he'll probably realize that sooner rather than later. And I can, I believe uh, if ego isn't, isn't the, if ego is the obstacle, then Christie will stick around for longer than Scott and Pence. Yeah, with with Bergam, I, I I like the guy, but what he's doing is kind of, you know, it's not totally on the up up and up. He's basically you know bought his way onto this debate stage that he that he shouldn't be shouldn't be part of. Maddie, uh, I I agree, and I think that Christie is just enjoying himself too much in attacking Trump and having occasion regular occasion to attack Trump. So I think it will be Bergam, uh, Pence, and Scott. Yep, I I totally agree with that. Three, I agree with the the reasoning on. Pence, you know, when, 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 and I'll still say a little if, but uh, when he sees it's not happening in Iowa, he's, he's not just going to take his 5% to, to be there and take it, take it from someone else's hide. He'll get out because he is, he is a genuine and, and sincere patriotic citizen. And between Scott and, and Christie, I just think Christie, you know, it's, it's all in New Hampshire. So he'll take the drubbing in, in Iowa is not even competitive. And I, I think we'll probably see it through in New Hampshire, you know, in, in New Hampshire polling, actually, he's been, I think there was a poll a couple weeks ago that had him in second. He, he's been part of the pileup and kind of the, the, the big tie for second, third, and fourth 
And that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, of course. By the way, yeah. Where he actually does yeah. does well enough to compete with with Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Yeah, Rich, exactly. Rich, yeah. can I just say something inadvisable on the on the um, inadvisable? Yeah, inadvisable yeah, about absolutely. Glenn Please, Glenn yeah, Young do, it. And, <laughs> do it. Glenn Youngkin and the, and the donor class. Uh-oh. So, yeah, so this isn't, isn't going to work because it's really like a half measure, right? So before he was governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin's career was a McKinsey to the Carlisle Group um, career. And I don't know. I just think Republican donors should just go deeper into their hearts and argue for regime change and putting BlackRock in charge of the government entirely, <laughs> replacing Congress and the executive branch. Uh, kind of have like an alt-right crossover appeal with the idea of like a national CEO. <laughs> I, I just I just can't believe the half-heartedness of going to Glenn, Glenn Youngkin with the Carlisle Group. Re, re, go, go big or go home, right? Black, <laughs> black, regime change in favor of BlackRock. Just let's so that do is it. a good point, though. Like why, why Youngkin and not Brian Kemp? Right. Well, we, the thing is like Youngkin only – his victory was so circumstantial. It was like if the teachers' unions in Northern Virginia – weren't basically saying that all children are COVID-19 dirty bombs that I want to mutilate gender-wise, he wouldn't have won, right? Like, he, and he was up against Terry McAuliffe. So I just don't think he's that great. I just think Democrats in that state absolutely fumbled it. Um, and he, he was just a safe pair of hands. He looked normal, and he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't a lunatic saying I'm not a witch, you know, or any of the other things Republicans do to uh, scare the horses. So he's just a guy. <laughs> like, he's basically just yeah. Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a talented man, but yeah. So let me uh, first mention, sign up for NR+, Plus, but let me mention a couple other things that are going on at NR. We're about two weeks out from our first monthly edition of the print magazine. It's going to be awesome. There's a really cool... Redesign. It's going to be thicker. The paper is is nicer. It's it's going to it's going to be very cool. Just trust me. Everyone that we've given prototypes of the uh, new, new magazine to are just their first reaction is always just wow, wow. So I'm very confident all of you out there who are print subscribers will have the the same reaction. So you have that to look forward to, and also. We've had the most popular feature in the magazine, the feature in the magazine that Bill Buckley cared about most is these little blurbs in the front called The Week. It's been a misnomer since the magazine stopped being a weekly, something in like 1957. But, you know, we're conservatives, <laughs> we're traditionalists, so we, we've kept calling it The Week, even though it's, you know, should be called The Fortnight or something like that. There, there'll stu- still be a, a feature uh, called The Week, uh, I believe, in the, the monthly ma- magazine. I believe that's what we settled on, on calling it. But, we're also adding a honest-to-God weekly edition of the week, and we've had some internal arguments about how, how we're going to actually uh, do this and, and various permutations of it. And someone in a meeting said, so, so you're telling me we're going to have a weekly edition of the week? And I was like, mind-blowing. Yes, we are. It's going to be digital. It's going to be available to you in your email uh, inboxes every Friday morning, and it's going to be awesome. So that's something, even if you're not print subscriber, to look look forward to so um, some 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 big changes coming at NR some exciting stuff uh, just weeks away with that let's hit a few other things before we go MBD you previewed your faux Irish golf outing uh, yep. a week ago how did it go uh, it was extremely wet <laughs> um, we went to Bally Owen in uh, northern New Jersey which is a uh, 
a big public links course there. And it basically rained the entire time, and it was glorious. Uh, it was my my uh, my wife's cousin got married. This was kind of a delayed bachelor outing, and it took guts, and we were all tired and sore and soaked to the bone by the end of those eighteen holes. Uh, but by God, we did it. Everyone else, everyone else who had reservations that day canceled wisely. Uh, we foolishly went out there and tromped around in the muck and the mud. And uh, and the deep fescue, and it was great. Uh, don't ask about my score, though. <laughs> <laughs> Noah, so birthday month at the Rothman household has finally come to an end. Blessedly, yes. Uh, it's lovely to celebrate my children's birthdays, but they do fall rather close to each other. So it opens up with September 2nd with my youngest, then we have the big party for both of them, and then it ends with my oldest birthday, which is tomorrow, he turns nine, and it's just going to be a very, you know, it's a fun affair, but a slightly lower key affair, which is so not fair to him, because he was born first, but just just the nature of the calendar that by the time it comes around, we're all like, oh, okay, there's one last one, mm-hmm. but yes, he's we got some plans for him, and I can't wait for October. So Maddie, you're reading Gone with the Wind. I am, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I realized I hadn't really delved that deeply into American literature, so I decided to start with this one, and it's just amazing. I mean, it's one of these books that's it's obviously really big, but the reason it's so big is because Margaret Mitchell really takes her time with each character and gives a quite sophisticated psychological background, and uh, yeah, I'm just I'm really enjoying it. I also think it's it's a good way to get interested in a in a period of history. So this is obviously American Civil War, but just to pick a, a novel, especially epic novel, read it and then start kind of looking up the things it references in terms of the history. So yeah, enjoying it so far. Five chapters in, it's like 25 more to go. <laughs> so I went to the local high school football game over the weekend, last weekend, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. And there's just plays you, you're never going to see at a higher level of football that involve, you know, levels of deception that you just wouldn't wouldn't get away with, but kind of work and in high school, which is kind of fun to see. I mean, there's one play that was, it was in, be, in between, somewhere in between a squib kick and an onside kick. But I think the intention, and this is what ha- was what happened was just to catch the um, the receiving team, the front line of the receiving team, unawares and kind of knock it off of them and recover the fumble. And that's exactly what happened. And the home team won. So everyone went home happy with that. It's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is just Jim Garrity, Yunkin 2024, a terrific idea that will never work and shouldn't happen for Pouring cold water in his way, which is a little bit different than mine, on this idea, which uh, has no use in the real world. Maddie Kearns. My pick is uh, an article by Leah Labresco Sargent from the upcoming edition of the magazine. It's called Against an Abortion Compromise. And Leah kind of explains not only why it doesn't make sense practically to settle for a compromise long term with pro-life strategy, but she also says it is possible to convert people on this issue. And the reason for that is she was one of them. So she was uh, previously a a pro-choice advocate and she was won over by the arguments uh, not in their compromised form, but the arguments that life is sacred. So, no recommend. Jack Butler, the left doesn't hate McKinsey enough. Um, he takes a look at the Confessions of a McKinsey Whistleblower, which was published in, I believe, The Nation. And uh, he recites, you know, rehashes the, the left's criticism of McKinsey as a consultant group that 
sort of weaponizes altruism among the young up and cover class. But his insight, Butler's insight, is the extent to which McKinsey uh, has become so efficient at rent-seeking and um, using the regulatory state uh, to advance its interests in ways that do not fulfill the mission statement insofar as we understand the mission statement. So um, a, a new aspect that the left is reluctant to explore in its hatred of this particular consultant group. So my pick is MBD's piece actually today titled Something is Going to Break. Read it and be forewarned. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast is produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to CEI and the Benson Center. Thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.